welcome. This is Deacon Matt Newsom, and I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. And this is episode two of our Campus Ministry Summer School podcast series, where we are looking at church history by examining uh, the different heresies that the church has had to deal with um, throughout her history. And today we're, we are looking at uh, a heresy so old that it actually predates Christianity, and that is Gnosticism. We'll be learning about the Gnostics. But before we, we talk about the Gnostics, I want to talk about uh, a movie that came out about 20 years ago, which I'm sure you've heard of, called The Matrix. Now, if anyone has not seen The Matrix and doesn't want any spoiler alerts, um, feel free to skip ahead for the next two minutes or so of this podcast. Um, but honestly, it's been out for 20 years, so um, if you haven't seen it yet, you need to get on that. Um, so most of you, if you're familiar with The Matrix, you know it stars Keanu Reeves, and he played a character named Tom Anderson. And Tom Anderson had kind of a humdrum office job. He lived by himself, and he was just generally very bored with his mundane existence. But he also led a secret life on the computer as a hacker, where he went by the code name Neo. And that's kind of the world where he really felt himself. He felt at home. He felt alive. The rest of his life, what we would call the real world, um, he was just kind of coasting along, dissatisfied with his humdrum existence. He was yearning for something more that he knew must be out there, right? Something more real, more true, where he really belonged. And that's what he was seeking kind of in his computer hacker uh, community. And the plot in The Matrix really kicks off when Neo is approached by others who have taken notice of him. They've sought him out in order to initiate him into the secret of reality that forms the basis of the Matrix universe. And that secret is that this world as we know it is an illusion. And in the real world, machines have actually taken over and they're using human beings for their natural energy, kind of like living batteries to, to power their world. And in order to keep the humans alive and to keep their brains active, um, the machines plug them into this giant computer program called the Matrix, and that creates the illusion of the reality in which we live. But a few special people, a few special humans, they're able to discover this secret knowledge about the real nature of the universe and, and come to an understanding that our reality really is an illusion. And by doing that, they're, they're able to extract themselves out of the matrix and wake up into the real world where they're leading a resistance against the machines. Okay, that's the matrix. Why am I talking about the plot of the matrix when I'm supposed to be talking about Gnosticism? Well, it's because the Matrix is just a modern-day retelling of the Gnostic story. Like the author of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything old is new again. And this is actually going to be a recurring theme, you'll notice, as we kind of take this tour of uh, the different heresies um, that the church has dealt with, because so many of these ideas that formed the heresies, they're recurring ideas. They might not you know, come up in exactly the same manner over history, but they continue to exist nonetheless, and the knowledge of how the church dealt with them historically can actually help us today to identify these errors and to, to understand the tendencies and, and why they keep coming up um, and also kind of serve to inoculate ourselves um, against these, these wrong ways of thinking. We're talking about Gnosticism first because it really is the first major challenge to, to orthodoxy, to, to right thinking that the church had to deal with. Um, and it's likely that even some of the New Testament uh, writers um, alluded to Gnosticism and, and some of what they said in, uh, you know, in the Gospels and the letters that they wrote um, were, was written with Gnostics in mind to kind of counter their argument, arguments. Um, now, I mentioned um, at the top of this podcast that Gnosticism actually predates Christianity. Um, and if you listen to episode one of the podcast, where we just kind of talked about heresy in general, you might be wondering how Gnosticism can qualify as a heresy, because we defined heresy, and this is the catechism definition, as the obstinate denial after baptism of a truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. So the understanding here is that the heretic 
is a baptized Christian, that they are someone who has been baptized or has been received into the Catholic Church, and after having received the Catholic faith, they are now obstinately denying some aspect of that faith. And that wouldn't seem to fit the bill for a religious uh, movement like Gnosticism that actually predates Christianity. It has its origins outside of Christianity. Well, a couple of things. The first is that our modern-day definition of heresy is a modern-day definition. This hasn't been the definition that's been understood and used by all Christians throughout the centuries. St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he defined heresy a little bit differently. In his Summa Theologica, he defined heresy as a species of infidelity. Uh, specifically, he writes, it's a species of infidelity in men who, having professed the faith of Christ, corrupt its dogmas. And he goes on to, to say that there are um, two ways that one can deviate from the truth of Christianity. One is simply to not believe in Christ. Um, and he says that that is the, um, the way of the pagans, the way of Jews. Um, they just they simply deny that Christ is the Messiah. Um, or deny that he existed at all. Um, the other way of deviating from Christianity, though, he writes, is to restrict belief to certain points of Christ's doctrine, selected and fashioned at pleasure, which, he says, is the way of heretics. So it's like a picking and choosing. I will believe certain doctrines of the faith, but I will not believe others, or I'll introduce my own doctrines into the mix as well. And this is really what the Gnostics did. They, uh, they used certain aspects of Christianity that were to their liking, but mixed it in with a lot of other non-Christian thought and, and belief. And so they created a, a heresy. And in terms of how, how it affected the church and how the church had to deal with it, it didn't matter that its origins were outside of the church. It still effectively became a heretical movement within the church. Um, so where did Gnosticism come from? Well, we're not really sure. No one is exactly sure of the origins of this movement, but it seems to have come from the East. Um, as I said, it's not Christian in origin. Um, what they believed is really kind of hard to define. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the New Age movement, like the New Age occult movement. When you ask someone who is kind of into New Age spirituality what they believe, you know, it's hard to get a real solid answer to that question because there's no, you know, New Age creed. There's no statement of doctrine that they have to adhere to. There's no hierarchy of a, of a New Age church um, uh, that, that can authoritatively say this is what New Age spirituality is, right? Um, instead, what you have are kind of a, a massive collection of different writings on spiritual topics by all kinds of different people that have borrowed ideas from different traditions like shamanism or Hinduism or European paganism, um, Eastern philosophies, and sometimes, yeah, even Christianity or Judaism um, to kind of create a, be a belief system or a spiritual system, if you like, um, to their liking. And an individual kind of New Age practitioner, their beliefs might vary greatly depending on what books they've read, um, what spiritual mentors they've been consulting. Um, and Gnosticism is very much the same way. There, um, there's no Gnostic creed. There's no Gnostic statement of belief. There's no Gnostic pope. There's no Gnostic hierarchy. There's no Gnostic church, right? Gnosticism is um, rather a, a, a common way of looking at the cosmos. Um, so there is there is enough in common within these different Gnostic movements that we can kind of classify them under the same umbrella. But there are different schools of Gnostic thought that would grow up around different individual uh, teachers. And so some early church writers refer to Marcionism, which is a particular Gnostic movement named after Marcion. Um, there's also Valentinianism, which is named after Valentinus. Um, and different in different parts of the world where Gnosticism uh, kind of took root, um, they would borrow the particular myths 
traditions, language of the different people that they encountered. So there was a Syrian school of Gnosticism um, that borrowed from a lot of Syrian um, culture and mythology. There was also a, a Greek or an Alexandrian Gnosticism, uh, and it was very Greek in its approach, and it took a lot of, uh, of its um, inspiration from Greek philosophy and, and so forth. Now, we're not going to be looking at you know, any of these particular individual schools of Gnostics just because we don't have the time to do that. And I'm not an expert in, um, you know, by any means in Gnosticism to be able to, to do that. Um, but uh, what we can do is look at some of the common traits of Gnosticism as a whole so that we can better understand why this movement proved to be such a threat to the early church. So what defines Gnosticism? Well, first of all, the word Gnostic itself comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, gnosis, and it simply means knowledge. The short definition of Gnosticism that's given in the, the 1910 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia is, quote, the doctrine of salvation by knowledge, end quote. The doctrine of salvation by knowledge. So the key factor of Gnosticism was that there is this secret knowledge that only a select few can possess. And if you are one of these enlightened ones, these illuminated ones that possess this secret knowledge, then you will be able to be saved. Right? But most people are not going to possess this secret knowledge. Right? So salvation in, in the Gnostic scheme of things doesn't involve grace from God. It doesn't involve merit, even really on our part, but just the possession of this secret knowledge that most other people lack. And that's kind of attractive to people, if you think about it, right? Because everyone likes to be in on the secret. Everyone likes to feel like you know something that others don't, right? There's that little tinge of superiority that, that is attractive to, to a lot of people. Um, the long definition that's given in the Catholic Encyclopedia, I'll read because I think it just really illustrates well how hard it is to pin down any particular Gnostic beliefs. And this is what they, what they write. Gnosticism is a collective name for a large number of greatly varying and pantheistic, idealistic sects which flourished from some time before the Christian era down to the 5th century and which, while borrowing the phraseology and some of the tenets of the chief religions of the day, and especially of Christianity, held matter to be a deterioration of spirit, and the whole universe a deprivation of the deity, and taught the ultimate end of all being to be overcoming the grossness of matter and the return to the parent spirit which return they held to be inaugurated and facilitated by the appearance of some God-sent Savior. Okay? So, that's a long definition, but we can break that down, and it kind of tells us what constituted the essential aspects of the Gnostic worldview, their, their cosmology, or how they saw the universe. The key thing to, to take out of that is that they basically saw the creation of the physical universe as a mistake. It was something that was done either, um, you know, truly as a mistake and an error, or it was the product of um, evil intentions. If it was done intentionally, it was done by an evil, uh, evil spirit. Uh, that depended on the particular Gnostic school, but they all held in common that the creation of this physical universe was, was bad. Was, was an evil thing that had to be overcome. And that's what salvation consisted of, was us being freed from this physical universe that, that we find ourselves kind of trapped in. Um, uh, as that Catholic Encyclopedia definition um, also suggested, um, they um, believed in some God-sent Savior that was going to help to facilitate their uh, release from kind of this physical prison. And so they did have their own version of a Messiah um, story, which Christ kind of got mapped onto. Um, we'll talk about that more in a sec. But more about Gnostic cosmology, you know, in, in general. They do believe in a supreme being of sorts, not in a personal God, not in one that we can personally relate to, not one that has that personal identity, but 
they do believe in a supreme being as uh, an undefinable, undefinable kind of great unknown force, right? A force that governs all everything. Um, there's kind of shades of Star Wars here, and indeed a lot of George Lucas's ideas for the the mythology in the Star Wars series has a lot of Gnostic um, uh, elements to it. So they believed in this supreme being, this great unknown force. Um, and the one thing that they knew about this supreme being for certain is that it's entirely spirit. It's not physical. It's entirely spirit. And this original pure spirit God being um, emanated from itself other pure spirit forces. Um, the, the name, the nature, the classification of these spiritual forces varies widely according to the particular Gnostic um, group, but they, they all had a large number of them. Um, they're uh, sometimes identified with um, ideas like silence, or truth, or wisdom, or even things like depth, right? Um, those spiritual beings were quite fertile, and together they created other spiritual beings who created other spiritual beings, and so forth and so on, until the Gnostic pantheon is just filled to the brim with different spiritual beings that they called aeons or demiurges, and they gave them all kinds of strange, esoteric-sounding names. Um, and, uh, in fact, some of the Christian writers kind of made fun of them a little bit for uh, just giving these kind of bizarre-sounding names to, to all these different spiritual entities. Um, but it was one of these spiritual beings, or one of these demiurges, that they believe is responsible for the creation of the physical world. Not the supreme being, right, but one of these lesser gods. Um, and as I said, depending on the particular Gnostic school of thought, that was either done by mistake, um, because this, this lesser demiurge um, uh, was incompetent um, and didn't know what he was doing, or it was done intentionally um, as a malicious act, right? Uh, but either way, the result is the same. We have this world, this physical world, which is just utterly base and detestable and should not be. It, it represents a, a departure from the ideal of reality. But some human beings have been given a, a spark of knowledge by some of the higher-up gods, the ones that are closer to this supreme god. Um, and this spark of knowledge um, reveals to them the truth of the spiritual realm, these spiritual realities. And that knowledge will, would um, eventually result in that believers uniting after death, right? Because they have to leave this physical world behind. But after they die, they could reunite with these higher gods in the spiritual realm, or sometimes even to that original supreme god um, itself. That's, that's the goal. That's what Gnostic salvation um, consists of. Leaving behind this physical world and uniting ourselves with these, these upper levels of, of spirituality or even with the supreme being. And that story or some version of that story formed the basis of the worldview of, of the Gnostics. Um, and you can see how it's really easy to adapt that to other cultures and other traditions, right? Because they had so many gods and so many spiritual beings that they believed in. Um, so wherever they, the Gnostics went, um, the different pantheons of gods and goddesses that were worshipped by, by the Greeks, by the Romans, by the Persians, by the Hindus, or, or whatever other group, they could just identify them with any of these countless demiurges of the Gnostic cosmos. Um, even in Greek philosophy, Plato's ideals that he wrote about, his ideals were identified as Gnostic spiritual entities. And since only a few people were supposed to possess this secret knowledge, this gnosis, it made sense that the great masses of other people would be fooled into believing, you know, these different myths, these different superstitions, that these other gods were, were real. Um, but the Gnostic is the one, you see, that knew the real story. They're so much smarter than everybody else. They knew the real story. They knew what's really going on. Um, 
so that's that's Gnosticism in a nutshell, right? Um, the the first kind of hallmark of Gnosticism is that just utter pessimism in regard to creation. The creation is just bad, utterly detestable. Um, no matter what else the Gnostic believed, um, they believed that this world was just utterly corrupt and that the bulk of humanity was just unable to escape it. You have to have that secret knowledge revealed to them by the higher gods to ever hope to, to be freed from this physical prison. The second um, hallmark of Gnosticism is their reliance upon magic. And by magic, I'm, I'm referring to that secret knowledge, right? Because the secret knowledge wasn't just knowledge in your head, but it was knowledge of certain, you know, weird esoteric names. Like I mentioned, they, they want, tended to give strange names to these demiurges, these spiritual beings. So the knowledge of those names would give you power, um, uh, magical formulas, different gestures and actions and sounds, like these ritual formulas. That's what would you know constitute this secret knowledge that the Gnostic would possess. And the idea is that that these magical formulas would enable the Gnostic to, you know, pass through death when he or she died to their true spiritual home, um, uniting with these, these higher-up gods. Um, it was a very esoteric, really kind of a hodgepodge movement. Um, but you can start to see, I think, how it managed to latch itself onto Christianity, especially its... Um, its adaptability to kind of blend itself in um, like a parasite, you know, almost to different other religions and cultures. Um, when it encountered Christianity, it did that with Christianity as well. I mentioned that the, the Gnostics had their own version of a Messiah story, right? They were looking for a savior that would be sent to them by these higher-up gods or even by the supreme god. Um, they probably borrowed that Messiah story from the Jewish tradition, right? Because they had encountered the Jewish people um, a long time before they encountered Christianity. Um, and the Jewish people uh, anticipated a Messiah for centuries uh, before Christ came. So uh, this kind of fit in well with the Gnostic cosmology. But the Gnostic Savior is different than the Christian Savior. Um, the Gnostic Savior you know, yes, it would it would come to bring a message from the God of light, the, the spiritual God, the higher God, um, a gnosis, a knowledge that would be delivered to his followers in order to save them. Um, so in a lot of ways, the story of Jesus Christ is kind of similar to that, uh, but there are stark differences between the Gnostic, you know, Messiah and the Christian Catholic Messiah. Um, so according to the Gnostics, what Christ was, he was an agent of the higher gods, or maybe even of the supreme god, who came down in, into the material world in order to rescue certain people from whom they viewed as the, a, a, a lesser, a, a stupid, if you will, kind of tyrannical god of creation, the god that created this physical world, right? That Christ came to rescue us from that god. And that evil God, they identified as the God of the Old Testament. The God that sent Jesus, and the God that Jesus spoke of in the New Testament, that's the supreme being, that's the good God that they worshipped. And so, in Gnosticism, we see a, a sharp break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's absolutely no continuity there, right? The Old Testament is the, that's the scripture of an evil God, and that is to be wholly rejected. In fact, there were some Gnostics um, that were called Nacenes, from, from the Hebrew word for serpent, who actually worshipped the serpent from Genesis as a symbol of wisdom, because they believed that that serpent in Genesis was an agent sent by the higher gods who was attempting to give mankind secret knowledge that could be used against the wishes of the evil god of creation. So they worshipped the serpent. They worshipped Satan. Um, but perhaps the sharpest distinction that can be drawn between true Christianity and kind of the Christian-based Gnosticism is, is this. The Gnostic version of Christianity is Christianity without a cross. And, and what I mean is that Christ, for them, their Messiah, could not have had a physical body. 
There was no way. Because he was an agent of this good God of light who is pure spirit, and everything physical, every physical aspect of creation is just corrupt um, in and of itself. It's innately corrupt. And so to put on a physical body would be an entrapment and and they just couldn't conceive of the fact that this agent this this of this pure spirit being would ever voluntarily put on this physical flesh right it would just be beneath him so in their view jesus only appeared to have a physical body in order to to pass on his secret knowledge to us human beings but there was no real incarnation right and if he didn't actually have a body, therefore there was no real crucifixion. He couldn't really suffer and die on the cross. Um, and obviously no resurrection either. So there's absolutely no concept of redemption like we find in the Catholic tradition. Because as I said before, for the Gnostics, salvation doesn't involve grace. It doesn't involve merit. It, it just simply involves possession of the right secret knowledge. And you don't have to have a physical body to you know to be able to transmit that um but you can imagine how attractive this gnostic version of christianity you know would be because this way of thinking is i mean it's still attractive today how many people today do you know are looking for that secret knowledge they're they're spending their money on books or or dvds or attending seminars and they're they're just looking for that secret that's going to make them happy, that's going to, to lead to their salvation. I mean, it's a tendency that we all have. Um, so if you think about the early church out there spreading the gospel message of, of Jesus and they're, they're establishing communities in, in the faith, they're baptizing, making believers, um, and then along behind them come these Gnostic mystics in their esoteric knowledge and they start telling these new Christian converts that they actually have the real truth about the Christian story, right? They they know the truth about Jesus and, you know, would you like us to share the truth about the real Jesus with you? Would you like to be let in on his secret wisdom that he really came to tell us, right? That's appealing to a lot of people. And so Gnosticism really did, you know, prove to be a threat to these early Christian communities. And that's why we have to treat it as a heresy. As I said, even though it's it originated outside of the Christian faith, outside of the Catholic Church, it, it really became a heresy that infected the church from, from within. Because so many baptized and converted Christians were being led astray by the teachings of these Gnostic sects that were wrapped in a Christian nomenclature, right, to make them attractive to Christians. Um, a lot of these people who followed the Gnostics, they didn't intend to renounce their Christian faith. They, they still believed in Christ. They were just misguided into believing that they were following, you know, the teachings of the real Jesus. Um, and a lot of these sects were very attractive. Um, remember, the basic tenet of their faith was that the physical world is just utterly depraved, right? And that includes our bodies. And so pretty much anything you did with physical creation, including our bodies, didn't matter. Um, and that was interpreted in different ways. So there were some Gnostic uh, groups that lived lives of just very strict, utter asceticism. They were celibates. They ate very strict vegetarian diets. Um, they lived a very austere lifestyle that would put, you know, even the most traditional monk to shame. Um, and that appealed to a lot of people uh, in the early centuries of the church because there were a lot of people who were looking for an antidote to um, what they considered to be the materialism and the corruption of the Roman Empire. And so a very strict ascetical movement appealed to them. But obviously that's not to everyone's taste. And so there were different Gnostic groups who took the opposite spin on things. And they, they taught that, you know, since our physical bodies were already just utterly corrupt to begin with and, and irredeemable, it didn't really matter how you live. So why not live it up, right? So gluttony and lust became kind of cardinal virtues. It was ways of kind of celebrating the fact that our bodies are depraved. And so why not just experience that depravity? So they had ritual orgies. Um, 
you know, and there was a Gnosticism basically for everybody. If you don't like one form of it, there's another form to choose from. So, without a doubt, Gnosticism really did prove to be a challenge for the church. It was a corruption of the message of Jesus Christ. It was leading people away from the church, and it was endangering people's souls. So, how did the church respond to this? Well, I mentioned before that um, even the New Testament writers um, had to deal with the Gnostic problem. Um, you, you see them mentioning this. The last words of St. Paul in the first epistle to Timothy, um, they're, they're usually taken as referring to Gnosticism. Uh, St. Paul uh, describes what he calls profane novelties of words and oppositions of knowledge falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. So this knowledge falsely so-called, right, is how a lot of Christian writers would refer to Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism or Gnosis means knowledge, but they would say, yeah, but this is knowledge falsely so-called. It's not true knowledge. There are uh, scripture scholars who believe St. Paul is also making references to, to Gnostics in his letter to the Colossians and his letter to the Ephesians um, as well. Um, now, since one of the chief um, errors of Gnosticism, uh, as far as Christ is concerned, was a denial of Jesus' physical body, a lot of the New Testament passages that really kind of hammer home um, this the physical aspect of Jesus' presence uh, can be seen as, as something that's written to counter the Gnostic movement. Um, so, for example, in John's first epistle, he tells us that the word of life is, quote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Right? He's, he's hammering home. Not, we haven't just seen and heard him, but we've, we've touched him. We've felt him. He has a physical body. Um, and so many of the very early Christian writings, even outside of the New Testament, also did this same thing. They gave witness to the physical reality of Jesus Christ, that he really was truly man, and he really did die on the cross, and therefore we are truly redeemed in his resurrection. One of my um, favorite early Christian writers is St. Ignatius of Antioch. He was uh, Bishop of Antioch, um, the first Bishop of Antioch after St. Peter uh, uh, left there to, uh, to go um, and found the church in Rome. Uh, so he was more than likely ordained um, uh, as bishop by St. Peter. We do know that St. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John, the evangelist. So here he is. He's part of that first generation of Christian converts. Uh, he was martyred in the year 107. Some sources say 110. Um, but around that time in the early 2nd century um, in Rome. And on his way to Rome from Antioch, he wrote letters to several uh, different churches on his way. And his letter to the church in Tralles, um, which is a town in Asia Minor, he wrote, Stop your ears, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and truly died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead. But if, as some that are without God, that is the unbelieving, say that he only seemed to suffer, then why am I in bonds? Why do I long to be exposed to the wild beasts? Right, so Ignatius is just underscoring that the physicality of Jesus, not, not even just that he was born of Mary and that he died on a cross, right? But even things like he ate and he drank which is just astounding if you think about it, because, you know, of all that Jesus taught and all that Jesus did, the fact that St. Ignatius highlighted in particular the fact that he really ate food and he really drank, you know, beverages. <laughs> you know, why would he focus on these two very mundane, you know, things? Everybody eats, everybody drinks. And that's just the point, right? That he wasn't some, you know, spirit descended from some usher, upper echelon of the spiritual realms. He wasn't some demigod or some demiurge or whatever the, the Gnostics called them, right? He truly did become man and he ate food 
and he drank water, and he drank wine, you know. Um, so we don't know for a fact um, that Ignatius had in mind specifically the Gnostics when he wrote this, because he doesn't mention Gnosticism by name. But, you know, the argument that Christ only appeared to suffer and die, um, that was a common argument that they used. Um, they, they thought that the crucifixion was some kind of a trick or some kind of an, an illusion. Um, in fact, there's a Gnostic text called the Second Treatise of the Great Seth. And in this Gnostic document, they have Jesus uh, saying, uh, quote, It was another who drank the gall and the vinegar. It was not I. It was another upon whom they placed the crown of thorns. But I was rejoicing in the height over their error of their empty glory, and I was laughing at their ignorance. End quote. So, that's a saying from the Gnostic Jesus. Um, the first Christian writer that we know of specifically to tackle the Gnostics kind of head-on is um, uh, St. Irenaeus. He was the Bishop of Lyon, um, and he wrote a, a, a great masterpiece uh, between 180 and 199 called The Detection and Overthrow of the Gnosis Falsely So-Called. Usually it's just called Against Heresies, the shorter title. And it's through his writings at the end of the second century that we really have a lot of our information about Gnostic practices and Gnostic beliefs. Um, and his refutation of them is based largely upon the idea of apostolic authority and apostolic succession. I'll, I'll read a quotation from, uh, from his works. He's talking about just the ability that we have to, to know the truth of the Christian faith. And he writes... It's possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth to contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which has been made known throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who are instituted bishops by the apostles and their successors to our own times, men who neither knew nor taught anything like these heretics rave about. For if the apostles had known hidden mysteries, which they taught to the elite secretly and apart from the rest, they would have handed them down, especially to those very ones whom they were committing the self-same churches. For surely they wished all those and their successors to be perfect and without reproach to whom they handed on their authority. Right. So his argument is, is really kind of simple, right? He says, look, if Jesus had had any of this so-called secret knowledge that he wished to give to us, he surely would have revealed it to his closest followers and companions, right? The 12 men that he especially selected to be leaders of the church. And if those 12 apostles possessed any secret knowledge that Jesus had given them, they would have passed it on to their successors. And we know who they are. We know who the successors of the apostles are. They're the bishops. They're the leaders of the church. And each one of these bishops, they have a pedigree right back to the apostles and through the apostles to Christ himself. So any secret knowledge that Christ may have possessed is now possessed by the church. And so you don't need to look any farther than the church for information about the real Jesus. And the church doesn't know anything about what these lunatic Gnostics are raving about, right? So he appeals to, to apostolic tradition, and he also appeals to sacred scripture, I might add, right? To, to show that these Gnostic beliefs and practices are just utterly foreign to Christianity. Um, he appeals to scripture specifically, though, not just, you know, the way that we might be used to people, um, you know, proof texting scripture and, and quoting chapter and verse, you know, to, to prove their point. He doesn't appeal to scripture in that way. He appeals to scripture by um, underscoring the apostolic authority of certain scriptural books above and beyond others. Um, and, and we'll get into that in just one second. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I, I want to make the point of, and this is true of all of these, these podcasts that we'll be doing, is that even though heresies, uh, in, in and of themselves, they're evil, they represent a corruption of the truth uh, and, and a falsehood, um, it's through the fires of this corruption that the orthodox faith, that, that true Christian teaching, is forged and is crystallized. Because each and every heretical movement, they've given rise to some development within the church that has been a gift to us, that's enabled us to better understand the Christian faith. 
And I think that the development that we can at least partially credit to the Gnostics is the canon of sacred scripture. Why do I say that? Well, the Old Testament, you know, we have from the Jewish people, we, we kind of inherited that, so to speak. And the New Testament, they were all written, you know, all the books of the New Testament was written before the end of the first century. But the canon of the Bible, that, li that official listing of books that belong in the Bible, um, that wasn't firmly established until the end of the 4th century, really the, the early 5th century, which is right at the tail end of when the church is really dealing with this Gnostic heresy. Um, we first see this in the year 382. Um, Pope Damasus, he was prompted by the Council of Rome to come up with a list of canonical books, and he made a list of 73 canonical books. Um, when I mention the Council of Rome, this is not an ecumenical council. The, um, this is just a, a local a local council. Uh, and there are a couple of other local councils um, around the same time. There's a Council of Hippo in 393. There's a Council of Carthage in 397. Both of these councils, they approved that same listing of 73 canonical books that Pope Damasus proposed. Um, and then finally, in, in the year 405, uh, a different pope, Pope Innocent, um, he you know, also accepted and recognized this canon of scripture, 73 books. So these books, though, have been around for a long time before the canon was, was declared. So why wait until the end of the 4th century to, to come up with this list? Well, it was because, in large part, uh, of the Gnostics. Um, Irenaeus, you know, has a, a point when he's writing in the second century. None of these Gnostic teachings can be found as part of the apostolic tradition. They're just false. They're, they're not, you know, part of the church's teachings. So the Gnostics had to come up with some other way to give authority and credence to their, their beliefs. And they did this by writing their own scriptures. Uh, these were oftentimes set up as alternative Christian gospels um, or other writings that they attributed to the apostles, right, in order to establish authority for them. Um, and say what you will about the Gnostics, they were prolific writers. They were really prolific writers. And maybe it's because there were, you know, so many different various competing Gnostic schools. There was no unity among them, and every school kind of wanted to have its own you know, its own set of scriptures. Um, but whatever the cause, you know, Gnostic literature really abounded. Um, and there was even a time when Gnostic writings about Jesus outnumbered Christian writings about Jesus. Um, the Catholic Encyclopedia says uh, that the Gnostics were, quote, most prolific in the sphere of fiction, as it is safe to say that three-fourths of the early Christian romances about Christ and his disciples emanated from Gnostic circles, end quote. Now, when they're talking about Christian romances, they're, you know, they're, ta they're talking about what we might call fan fiction today, right? You, you can imagine, even within the church, not, you know, not heretical movements, but within the church itself, people wanted to come up with stories about Jesus and about Mary, and, you know, they wondered what was Jesus' childhood like, or, you know, stories about the apostles and what they did. And so, you know, there was, you know, there was Christian writing that was done not just for spiritual benefit, but also just as, as works of fiction. That existed. Um, but what uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia here is saying is that the majority of that, three-fourths of that, came from Gnostic groups rather than Christian groups. And the Gnostics, a lot of times, you know, that line between what's fiction and what is being put forth as an actual spiritual um, authoritative, you know, document um, is not always easy to, to, to delineate. Um, so here are the names of just a few of the Gnostic writings that were circulated. Uh, and most of these were written between the 2nd and the 4th centuries, right? So a long time after the Christian New Testament. The, the New Testament, um, the last book in the New Testament to be written was Revelation, and that was written sometime around 90 AD. All of these Gnostic uh, books were written between the 2nd century and the 4th century, so much later. Um, and they're called uh, the Gospel of Eve the revelations of Adam, uh, the gospel of the Twelve, the gospel according to the Egyptians, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Matthias, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary, the acts of Peter, 
the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John, right, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these documents is still exist today. A lot of them we just know because they were referenced by other early writers, but a lot of them still exist today. Uh, and probably the two most famous would be the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of, of Judas. Um, the Gospel of Thomas we'll, we'll talk about first. Um, it's interesting in that it's not really a biography of Jesus. There's no narrative element at all. It's really just a collection of sayings, a collection of quotes that are attributed to Jesus, uh, 114 of them. Um, and really the kind of remarkable thing about it, actually, is that it seems to have um, some early forms of the actual sayings of Jesus that are found in the four canonical Gospels, right? So not everything about it is false. Um, and because it has some of these actual teachings of Jesus in it, um, some of the scripture scholars um, who are kind of in search for what they call the historic Jesus, um, they've attempted to identify the Gospel of Thomas with what they call Q. Now, Q is not the guy from Star Trek. Um, Q is the name that uh, some scripture scholars give to a theoretical um, early gospel that supposedly has the sayings of Jesus that are common to Matthew and Luke, but are not found in Mark. The reason why they, they think that this exists is that um, the, the prevalent theory among scripture scholars for a while has been that of Markan primacy. In other words, Mark was the first gospel written, and Matthew and Luke were um, written afterwards using Mark kind of as, as a common source. And that explains why Matthew and Luke have certain things that Jesus says that are um, also found in Mark. But... There is also a collection of, uh, of things that Jesus said and elements of Matthew and Luke that they have in common with each other, but that are absent from Mark. And so the theory is that there is some other source besides Mark that Matthew and Luke must also be drawing on that has these common sayings. Now, there's a lot of problems with that theory. And the first problem is that there's absolutely no evidence at all that um, this Q gospel actually exists. Um, it's, it's kind of just made up to fit this theory. Um, and, you know, there's other explanations for why Matthew and Luke might have these things in common. Um, one might have, you know, been... Uh, uh, referenced from another, right? Um, Luke, when he wrote his gospel, may very well have been familiar with Matthew's gospel already and, and pulled from that. Um, there's, you don't need to create this, this other kind of um, theoretical, imaginary document to, you know, to make sense of this. But in any case, that's what Q is. And so some people have said, oh, the gospel of Thomas must really be, be Q. Um, it's not. It, it couldn't be because the Gospel of Thomas, um, you know, dates much, much later than the uh, than the New Testament Gospels, and so for it to fit this this theory that it's Q, it would actually actually have to be very, very early, uh, and it's not. But to give you an idea about some of the things that that Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, um, you know, again, some of it is you know kind of does line up with what we see Jesus saying in Matthew and in Luke, but a lot of what Jesus says doesn't line up at all, um, at all, right? So the, the kind of the most controversial um, saying of Jesus is, is the last one. It's, it's the 114th quote, and I'll read that to you. It says, Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us, for females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, Look, I shall guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter heaven's kingdom. So, there you go. That's how the Gospel of Thomas ends, with Jesus claiming that he's going to make Mary, you know, he's talking about Mary Magdalene, um, he's going to make Mary Magdalene male, so that, or at least uh, you know, uh, make her a living spirit that resembles males so that she can enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Not not exactly the Jesus that we know in the New Testament Gospels. 
Um, the other Gnostic gospel that um, is kind of well-known still today is the Gospel of Judas. And uh, this has been in the news more recently because it's we've known about the Gospel of Judas for a long time. St. Irenaeus himself makes, um, um, or not St. Irenaeus, but some of the other early Christian writers um, make, make reference to... Uh, to uh, the Gospel of Judas, uh, Eusebius mentions it in in church in his history of the church, I believe, and Saint Cyril of Jerusalem um, mentions it as well. Um, so we've known about the Gospel of Judas, but the um, the actual text of it wasn't discovered until the 1970s. And more recently, in the year 2006, um, an English translation of it was made available and published by the um, uh, National Geographic. Um, uh, and they published it right around the time of Easter, which always seems to be when these things kind of kind of come out. Um, so the Gospel of Judas, its um, its big thing was it kind of flips, you know, our traditional understanding of the relationship between Jesus and Judas on its head, and makes Judas to be, you know, the hero of the story. Really, um, Judas, in fact, is the special apostle whom Jesus gave his secret knowledge or his gnosis to, right? Um, he, uh, I'll, I'll read a quote here. This is the Gospel of Judas 35. And they, the apostles, all said, we are strong. Yet the spirits could not dare to stand before him except Judas Iscariot. He was able to stand before him. Yet he could not look him in the eye, but rather turned his face away. Judas said to him, I know who you are and where you have come from. You have come from the immortal Aeon of Barbalo and from the one who has sent you, whose name I am not worthy to utter. But Jesus, knowing that he was thinking of something lofty, said to him, Separate from them, and I will tell you the mysteries of the kingdom. So, yeah, that's the secret knowledge or gnosis that Judas possessed, that Jesus really was sent from this aeon called Barbalo down to, to earth, to the physical world, to, to give us his, his gnosis, his knowledge, right? And um, uh, in, in you, it goes on to describe um, conversations between Jesus and, and Judas Iscariot during the week before Passover, in which Jesus tells Judas um, secrets that no other person has seen, not even the other apostles. Uh, Jesus tells Judas that the other apostles pray to a lesser God, right? But he is going to reveal to Judas the mysteries of the kingdom, right? Of the true God. And he asks G Judas to help him to return to the kingdom. But in order to do so, Judas must help him to abandon his mortal flesh, he says, you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. This, this isn't the Christian story, and we see why the early Christian fathers rejected these Gospels, because they recognize these aren't actual Gospels. These are not you know, things that are, that are representing the apostolic tradition. These are not things that are representing the true, you know, the true teachings of Christ, that are giving a true account of what Christ actually did. Um, they don't correspond to reality, and therefore they, they should be condemned. Uh, right? Um, St. Irenaeus uh, mentions this. He, he uses this as one of his arguments and against heresies. He's talking about you know, the authentic Gospels. And how they're a reliable source for information about Jesus. He says, Matthew issued among the Hebrews a written gospel in their own language, while Peter and Paul were evangelizing in Rome and laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also handed down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord who reclined at his bosom, also published a gospel while he was residing at Ephesus in Asia. So he's saying these are reliable sources of information about Jesus by you know these eyewitnesses, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Any other gospel is foreign to this. And we see this in every, every early Christian source that mentions the gospels. It's always Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. None of these other Gospels are ever given credence. They're only mentioned to refute them. Um, but a lot of scripture scholars today, um, when they're, they're looking at these Gnostic texts, they want to kind of present them as just an example of diversity of beliefs within Christianity, right? Um, rather than um, what they are, which is a, um, uh, they're not Christian texts, they're Gnostic texts that are teaching a Gnostic religion, but they're borrowing Christian imagery, Christian names, Christian, um, you know, Christian ideals. They're kind of um, putting them, um, you know, in a Christian mantle. Um, and that's dangerous to Christianity. It's dangerous to Christianity. It's not a diversity of beliefs within Christianity, right? It's not that, um, you know, what some of these, these people want to paint it out to be, which is that in the early church, orthodoxy was really ill-defined, and there was this wide diversity of beliefs. Everyone kind of just believed their own thing. And then over time, certain people kind of came to power and were able to enforce their own ideas of orthodoxy. But that's just simply not true. There's always been this true apostolic teaching that goes back to the very beginning, and there's always been teaching that was, you know, outside of that and opposed to that. And we see this from you know, the apostles themselves, um, warning their followers not to listen to, to anyone who preaches them a gospel other than what they have received from the apostles, right? Um, so that's the situation that the early church had to deal with. Um, and that's why, you know, even though the canon of, of scripture was never really a, a big issue for debate in the early church, it had to be firmly established. It had to be firmly established because by the 4th century, the Gnostics were flooding the market, so to speak, with their own versions of, of Jesus' story that were written to fit their Gnostic worldview. And to counter the claim that these were in any way, shape, or form true Christian texts, and, and to keep large numbers of Christians from being led astray by those claims, the church came up with a precise listing of exactly what is an inspired Christian scripture. Um, and that's the listing of the 73 books that we still have today. Um, and we can also note, I want to point out before we close, that you know, since the Gnostics rejected the Old Testament and thought that the Old Testament God was this evil God, um, the church's canon also included the entire canon of the Hebrew scriptures. It retained all of the Old Testament books, um, you know, showing that, that continuity with the Jewish tradition that came before it. Um, almost every heretical movement uh, that we'll, we'll learn about moving forward rejected some or all of the Old Testament, right? And the church has always been very adamant about retaining it in its entirety because as St. Augustine would say later, you know, the the new is hidden in the old, and the old is revealed in the new. You can't really understand one without the other. Um, and so we, we still retain the Jewish Old Testament as well. Um, and the church, you know, ironically would find itself defending the Old Testament canon again some 1,200 years later um, uh, against the, the Protestants at the Council of Trent, um, the Protestants wanting to remove certain of the Old Testament books. But that's a different heresy. We'll talk about that um, later on. Um, this kind of wraps up our, our overview of Gnosticism. Um, I'll put some, some links uh, on our website to some, uh, some of these things that I've been quoting uh, for you to look at. Um, I want to recommend another book for you um, by Dr. Brant Petrie. Petrie is spelled P-I-T-R-E. Um, and he's written a book called The Case for Jesus, The Biblical and Historical Evidence for Christ. And he has a chapter in this book. Um, it's, it's a great book for doing just basic Christian apologetics. And uh, the main thrust of the book is just the reliability of the, of the Gospels. Um, but he has a chapter in here that deals with what he calls the lost Gospels, which are really these, these Gnostic Gospels. Um, and he talks about why they don't have the same kind of credibility 
as the four canonical Gospels do. So I'll put a link to that book. I'll also link to some articles and things, and including an article that I wrote um, after I watched The Last Jedi. Um, uh, I, I wrote an article called The Gnostic Jedi, just pulling out some of these Gnostic themes that are made apparent in, um, in, in the, that particular uh, Star Wars film. So um, I know a lot of my students are Star Wars fans, and you may enjoy um, reading that. So that's it. We'll come back next week, and we'll look at another heresy um, that the early church um, really had to struggle against called Arianism. Uh, this is a true heresy in the sense that it did originate within the church as a um, disagreement within the church, a very strong disagreement over the nature of Christ, um, which, uh, of course, is of fundamental importance to, uh, to our Christian identity. So that's what we'll look at next week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this, this overview of Gnosticism and that your summer is going well. Um, so tune in next time. God bless.